Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and on today's program, we have with us Robbie Gallaty. Robbie is a senior pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Uh, He's also the founder of Replicate Ministries, which exists to equip local churches to make disciples who make disciple makers. Robbie's authored numerous books, including Growing Up, Firmly Planted, and Rediscovering Discipleship. And earlier this year, uh, I had a chance to read a book you co-authored, Robbie, with um, Stephen Smith called Preaching for the Rest of Us. Uh, I found it really helpful, maybe something that we can use uh, in our uh, residency program at at Liberty Baptist. But uh, thanks so much for coming on the program, brother. Man, glad to be here. I mean, I love being with a guy who can write more books. I mean, I, I try to write a lot of books, Jared, but you have, I think you write double what I write. And I try to write a lot. People say, man, you write way too many books. And I always say, Jared Wilson writes more than me. So thank you, my brother. Well, your, it, your love of writing, which is a, probably a labor of love. Am I right? It is. And I've always done it. So I don't know how to not to do it. You know. <laughs> Brother, I love. Here's what I tell people. They say, "How do you write so much?" And what I tell people is, I just keep the same pace that I did when I was doing my doctoral work, and I just do it today. You yeah. know, just same pace. So. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you should see the stuff that doesn't get published. <laughs> so, yeah, for real, for real. <laughs> you know, and, and right. if I couldn't get published, I would still be writing. I think that's uh, it's just the joy of of uh, you know, kind of running in the lane that you believe the Lord has placed you in, and and you just go. And if other people want yeah, to read right. it, it just you know, that's an additional blessing on top of that. Um, hey, why don't yeah, you tell man, us good. a little bit of your testimony? I imagine um, some of our listeners are, are familiar somewhat with your story, but um, uh, probably a great number of them are not. So if you could just kind of fill us in a little bit, I think it's a great testimony to uh, the grace of God, if you could share that with us. Yeah, man, I'd love to. Yeah, I'll give you the kind of a short version of yeah. it. I was actually raised Roman Catholic. Uh, South Louisiana, very religious home, went to church every Sunday. We missed Sunday. We went to confession on Saturday and uh, kind of lived like I wanted during the week and then stepped into that confessional and expected the peace of God to come over me so I could go back and live like I want the rest of the week. Um, I knew who Jesus was when I was a kid, you know, went to parochial Catholic schools, but I didn't have a relationship with him at all. I uh, got to college, uh, went to uh, a Southern Baptist college, William Carey, on a basketball scholarship. Didn't know it was Southern Baptist <laughs> until I landed on campus, and I became the target, Jared, of every evangelism class on campus. Right? Nice. Uh, who do you tell about Jesus? Let's tell Robbie he's lost. And uh, <laughs> I heard the gospel, rejected the gospel in college, uh, but would remember that seven years later as those seeds were kind of sown in my life. Uh, got out of college. I was... Um, 6'6", 290 pounds roughly, training Brazilian jiu-jitsu, aspiring to be in the UFC back then. And a guy sees me at a restaurant bar one night. He's like, man, would you be interested in being the head bouncer of my club, downtown New Orleans, in the middle of Mardi Gras? I said, let me get this straight. You're going to pay me to fight? I'm in. I mean, just a great business opportunity for me. Uh, I decided to do that for a couple months. A guy pulls a gun on me after about a three-month stint, and I realized, okay, I need a career change. So kind of make a lateral move from bouncing to bartending. Seemed like the right choice. And uh, I do that for a couple more months, and I'm driving home from work November 22, 1999. And an 18-wheeler comes across two lanes of traffic, 
rear ends my car at 65 miles an hour, slams me into the guardrail, and uh, my seatbelt locks and my back torques. I herniate two discs in my neck, two discs in my back. <clears throat> I go to the doctor and they, they send me home. I'd never taken drugs before. I was an athlete, so never really did any drugs uh, in high school or college, but I was in pain legitimately. And so I went home that day with, with four things, Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. Hmm. And you know the story. You know, within three months, I'm addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, I don't have a desire to make money. I can't train. I, I can't really uh, go after in the world anymore because I'm injured. And so uh, I just want to get high. And so I run through the 30-day prescription in two weeks. A so-called friend comes up to me. He's like, man, why are you following the pharmaceutical drugs? You can buy street drugs, heroin and cocaine. You could buy it in bulk. You can bag it, sell it, uh, and make money. And so I basically took this business knowledge from the world, brought it into the drug world. And you know, in the beginning, times were great. I mean, we had tons of money, which normally happens, you know, at the beginning of this. But as we always know with any sin, it always takes you further than you want to go. Um, yeah. And so basically, within a few months, uh, I had this drug addiction, which basically kind of peaked at $180, $200 a day of a heroin and cocaine addiction. Ran out of money kind of midway through, robbed my own family for $15,000 almost bankrupted my dad's business. Parents kicked me out the house, lived without gas, electricity, and water for almost three months. Long story short, two rehab treatments, one of which was in Tijuana, Mexico, of all places. <laughs> another story for another day. But anyway, I come back from the second rehab treatment, and Jared, you know, I'm in my room, and I'm, I'm remembering what Jeremy told me in college about Christ seven years before. And uh, I, I'm literally thinking in my immature mind, I mean, what could hurt if I tried Jesus? And so I understood the weight of my sin in that, in that time. I knew I needed to be saved. I couldn't save myself. I knew that. And I cried out to the Lord. And here's what I said. I said, God, I'm going to go after you with the same intensity I did to get high. Like, what can happen if I go all in after you? And I said, I know I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. And what, if, what would happen if I tell everybody about what you did if you saved me? Um, and so here I was in my room, 22 uh, years old, had this, I mean, 25 years old, had this radical Paul-like conversion and just get radically saved where I know the day he saved me, I was going into ministry. Uh, for the next eight months, I kind of wandered. You know, I didn't know how to read the Bible. I didn't know how to memorize scripture. I didn't know how to pray. I uh, got invited to a church, Edgewater Baptist Church, uh, got invited to go hear a Bible study by this guy named T-Bone. And, and you know, so I'm thinking... <laughs> The rapper? Bone, that's my kind of guy there. Man, I know those kind of guys. And I walk in and I see what looks like a sirloin steak. No offense, Tony Marita's there. You know, I mean, I love Tony. but And you know, I love Tony. But he's not the typical T-bone persona. You know, it's like, <laughs> but, right. uh, Tony and I hit it off. And man, listen, here's what happened. I never heard someone expound the scriptures like Tony was doing, just kind of an exegetical expository way. Tony brought me to Edgewater, and I met a man named David Platt. And David, one Sunday after church, comes up to me, and he's like, Hey, man, would you want to meet once a week to study the Bible, memorize Scripture, and pray? I said, David, I'd love to. He said, Pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we meet? <laughs> and for the next two years, we met every week in the beginning for six months, and then we moved to twice a week, every week for two years. And People like people are like, man, what is it like? What was it like to be discipled by David Platt? You know, what was it like? Did you study the finer tenets of soteriology? <laughs> yes, we did. Did you talk about eschatology? We did. But I can't really tell you just like kind of off the cuff what he taught me specifically. 
but I can tell you what I learned the most was how he lived. Like he gave me this passion for the nations because I saw his passion for the nation. And he gave me a burden for preaching because I shared the burden he had. And he gave me this unapologetic way to share the gospel because he, you see what I'm saying? So it wasn't so much what he said as much as how he lived. And David just kind of emulated before me what he would then expect from me. And so I tell people the reason I'm so passionate about discipleship and given really giving my life to it is because I'm the product of discipleship. And I often ask myself the question, how different would my life be if I wasn't discipled intentionally? Yeah. I definitely wouldn't be here right now. I wouldn't be speaking to you probably. Yeah. Uh, but the better question is how differently could our lives be in the lives of those around us if we got real serious about making disciples? So that's kind of how I've given my life to and where I've come from. Yeah, that's great. That was actually, uh, my next question was to, you know, ask you about your passion for discipleship. This is, um, you know, something you've uh, become uh, really one of our leaders on in in speaking to. Um, And so I guess I'll just ask you, what do many churches get wrong, or at least um, what do they misunderstand about uh, making disciples? Yeah, man, this is a great question because, and I've thought a lot about this, particularly in the context of the local church and e- even in how we share the gospel, Jared. And so let me, let me just kind of pose an idea to you. I think one of the challenges we have in the local church is that we've made conversion the end and baptism the goal, right? Yeah. So like we make baptism the finish line. And I'm not against reaching lost people and, 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 and moving people to a position of baptism, and praise God for that, because obviously that is the Great Commission. But for Jesus, baptism was never the end of the line. It was the beginning of a, of a starting line of a relationship with him, obviously. And what I tell people is, could it be that maybe we have preached half the gospel, right? We've preached, this is what you're, you're saved from, and sadly, we haven't taught people what they're saved for, which is yeah. truly the gospel, right? It's not just Jesus saving us from sin and from transgression and from separation, but Christ has saved us for this wonderful life, this Christian life. And I think if we only preach half the gospel in that sense, then we create this consumer mentality, right? Like, hey, you don't want to go to hell, do you? So re- repeat this prayer after me. And if I can get people to say, uh-huh, at the right place, then what we do is we tap them on the back, we present them to our church, and we say, hey, let's give the Lord a hand for the Joneses. Mike just gave his life to the Lord, and we pat them on the back, and here's what we tell. And, and listen, I'm guilty as charged because I've done this too. We pat them on the back, we give them a Bible, and we say, turn to the gospel of what? You know it. John, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, turn to John. And start reading, and I don't even know where we got that from, to be honest. <laughs> like, here's one of my favorite books. Yeah, here's one of my new books, uh, The Imperfect Disciple. And oh, by the way, start at page 260. You'll love it from there on. <laughs> we never we never, we never, do that, right? But we do that all the time. And then we say, here's what we say. We say, suck it up. We'll see you next week. And so, so we have to ask ourselves, how have we gotten here? And I think it's because we have taught people or told people what they're safe from, but we haven't told people what they're safe for. So I think in the church, if baptism's the goal and conversion's the the, the thing we're shooting for, then what people do after salvation is really on them, right? I mean, and, and we wouldn't maybe say this publicly, but we'd think this internally. 
And what I've realized is that the Christian life is not just from salvation, it's for salvation. So that's the first thing. It's just maybe changing our focus. The second thing, I think, is changing the scorecard. Yeah. And it really kind of dovetails from the first. A lot of churches have bought into this idea of using business metrics to gauge biblical maturity, right? Mm. Like, and, 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 and I'm not saying we shouldn't do these things because they're important, but think of the ABCs of the church world, right? If you and I go to the convention and we're pastoring churches, what are people asking us, right? Like, hey, man, how, how many are you running, right? right? How big's your Sunday school? Like, are you in a building campaign? And all those things, praise God, are good. I'm not saying we diminish those things. But if we use the ABCs of church growth, you know, attendance, buildings, and cash, ABCs, as the only metric for spiritual growth, then what happens is we minimize everything else in the church. And and let's be honest, Jesus never gazed by those metrics. I mean, let's take attendance. (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. And no offense to our Lord, but let's be honest here. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he has a whopping 120 meeting with him uh, as this fledgling movement is getting started in the book of Acts, right? Acts 1, 120 people. Now, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, uh, Outreach Magazine is not going to do a story on that church plan. <laughs> I mean, look, no offense to our Lord. I mean, Jesus is not making the cover of the fastest growing churches. And you've got to understand, he has everything in his tool belt to grow a church, right? Like, like this is the man who walks on water and raises the dead and gives sight to the blind. And oh, by the way, if you don't have food for your dinner on the grounds, he can multiply catfish po' boys on demand, right? <laughs> Jesus Christ in the flesh, the greatest preacher of all time. And at the end of Jesus's ministry, I mean, this is kind of a shocking thing to people. Jesus has a whopping 120. I'm not discounting our Lord's ministry, but here's what I want to make a point about. Jesus was on to something more than just growing numbers for the sake of counting numbers. Jesus knew, as we see, that if he could grow people deep, that the width of the ministry would take care of itself. And I think so many of us in seminary, and this is what I love about what you guys are doing at Midwestern, you're not only growing people to show them numeric growth is good, but if you grow as a person spiritually, and if you grow deep, and if you grow your people deep, God will take care of the breadth of your ministry. Not not you go out and try to grow the breadth of your ministry, although God will do that. You grow the breadth of your people, or the depth of your people, God will grow the breadth of your ministry. The second thing is buildings. I mean, Jesus, you know, Luke chapter 9, hey, I'll follow you. Jesus is like, hey, man, I don't even have a place to sleep. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. Like, I'm not one of these high-flying rabbis who stay at the best hotels and part of frequent flyer club membership. Like, I don't even have a place to sleep or meet. So he definitely wasn't interested in buildings. And then the final one, see cash. I mean, we all know who he put in charge of the traveling treasury, right? I mean, and we know what happened to Judas. So he's not interested in those things only. So what I'll say, what I say to pastors in the church is, if we're going to see discipleship, watch this, move from a ministry in the church to becoming the ministry of your church, which is a mindset shift, we have to move beyond gauging successes, watch this, that don't accomplish the goals. One of the things I tell pastors is this, we have to train ourselves with not being impressed with successes in ministry that don't accomplish the goal. And if the goal is making disciples who make disciples, 
then we have to lead and make the hard decisions of trying to eliminate everything that gets in the way of the lo- in the local church of that main goal, which is to make disciples who make disciples. Let me um, sort of dovetailing off of that. Let me ask you this question because I talked to a lot of pastors who would hear everything you just said and say, "Yep, um, agree, sign on, sign me up." And they're looking out at their congregation and they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I how do I do this? Um, what would be some you know first principles that you would share for the pastor who is thinking, "Hey, I agree agree with you. We need to make disciples, not just converts." And I, I definitely want to develop a discipleship culture or process or plan for my church. Where should he start? What should he start thinking through? Yeah, it's a great question. Okay, so one of the things we have to realize is that the pastor, if you're not emulating before your people what you expect, then it's going to be very hard to get them to do that. So let me give you let me give you just an example. When I went to Brainerd Baptist Church, which was the church I pastored before Long Hollow. Um, it was a very traditional church, great church, conservative church, very traditional church. In fact, a good friend of ours, Micah Fries, is there now, doing a great job. Uh, but when I went to Brainerd, Brainerd was a church of about 800 people, let's say, but it was very traditional, okay? Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night. How do you even have time to add an additional option or a time of the week where people are going to meet in discipling relationships? So, what I did was I decided to change, repurpose, probably is the best word, repurpose Wednesday night, okay? okay? So I went up one Wednesday night, and I said, folks, listen, another sermon by me on a different topic, on a different text, is not going to be the most beneficial thing for you, and it's not, honestly, the most effective use of my time personally. So what I did was this, Jared. I had a guy on staff who loved to preach, was learning to preach basically said, this guy, Chris, is going to lead Wednesday night, and here's what I'm going to do, church. And we had about 100 to about 120 senior saints who would show up to the traditional Wednesday night service. I said, I'm going to go in my office, and I'm going to take a group of four guys that we're going to meet for the next 12 to 18 months. We're going to live life together. I'm going to invest in those guys in church. At the end of that 12-month period, I'm going to challenge those guys to replicate their life into the life of another person. Now, you can imagine, when you make a move like that in a Southern Baptist church, everybody is supportive and loves that decision. Uh, no. <laughs> I was... no. No, no, no. They hated that decision. Man, listen, people would show up on Wednesday night, right, like guests, and they'd say, who's this guy preaching? Yeah. Like, like where's our pastor? Doesn't he have a degree in preaching? Like, what is he doing? And, and like, at first, they started to see it and think, like, what is, this is the dumbest idea. Why would he go meet with four guys? He's got 100-plus people here. But what happened was this. For a year, I emulated before them what I thought was important. And then here's what happened. After one year, I got up and I said, hey, listen, what I just did with a group of guys in my office on Wednesday night, I'm going to challenge you to do church-wide with a handful of people that you're living life with already. So here's what we tell people about discipleship. It's never less than the weekly gathering time of intentional, intentional, accountable, Bible reading, life living together. It's never less than that, but it's always more than that. Okay. So what I mean is there has to be a time when you're meeting weekly 
I meet on Wednesday nights. It's just a natural time for me to meet because there are age-graded activities normally at churches. So you can put your students in student ministry and you can put your preschoolers in. And normally in most of the Baptist churches, there's a lot of vacant classrooms and, and rooms all throughout the building that you can use for discipleship times. So what I tell pastors is find a group of three to five guys if you're a guy. If your wife will find a group of three to five ladies, meet for the next 12 to 18 months. And it's not rocket science. We're not, we're, you know, it's not like I'm teaching deep systematic theology, although I did that one year. My, one of my first groups, Jared, we got in there. It was a group of businessmen. We took the big blue book from Wayne Grudem. There you go. You and I love that stuff. They were deer in the headlights at first. Now, they liked it toward the end. I mean, who doesn't like the incommunicable qualities of God, there right? And go. the communicable <laughs> qualities of God. But at the end of our year time, they loved it. I said, hey, guys, what are you going to do with this? They said, man, we love the group. We can't do anything with it. But, boy, we love the group. And I realized they can't replicate that. So I purposely make the group simplistic enough where it's reproducible. Here's the thing I tell people when I'm talking to them about discipleship, and here's a key point. The discipleship process is never complete until the mentee becomes a mentor or the player becomes a coach, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm just a, a disseminator of information to the people in my group, and they're just cisterns of truth, in a sense, never taking this on and passing the information on as kind of a channel of blessing— then basically they become a cul-de-sac and not a thoroughfare. Discipleship is a pathway. And so we're learning never for ourselves, we're passing it on. So here's the saying we use at Long Hollow. The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. That's and good. it's really simple, but if you think about it, the gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. So if that's the case, every Christian is either running with passion and handing the baton off, or... They're fumbling the handoff. And so what I would say to pastors is just a simple thing. Number one, get you a group of three to and, and January, February, the perfect time to do this. I mean, this is the ideal time. Grab a group of guys and meet for the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. And then at the end of that time, challenge them to reproduce the group with someone else. And that's really the ministry plan A of Jesus. I mean, he, he invested in 12, and out of the 12, he had a group of three, Peter, James, and John. At the end of time, he just said, guys, I'm leaving. Pass this thing on. And that's really how we're here today. That's great. I, I want to ask you about that process uh, a little bit more, but first let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsors at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. Okay, we're back. We're talking with Robbie Gallaty, senior pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee, author of numerous books, uh, founder of Replicate Ministries, and we're talking about discipleship. Um, in the last sort of exchange we had, you referenced um, 
really the simplicity, the um, small beginnings of the process. Um, and it's, it's refreshing to me because I think a lot of people who think through discipleship plans or discipleship programs, they're thinking um, not necessarily grand scale, but efficiency. And there's so much about the discipleship you know, nitty gritty. That's that's not efficient. We're not efficient people. We're not. You know, we have messy lives. We have sin that we need to constantly repent of. And so, it's encouraging to me actually to hear you say, um, you know, that you started for twelve to eighteen months with four guys in your office, and then challenged others to do the same. Do you have thoughts on on this? The way we try to make discipleship efficient. I mean, the church I grew up in. Uh, discipleship training, we called it, and it was essentially, it, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a class, and, um, you know, certainly you need information to be discipled, but it was really just sort of an extension of Sunday school, kind of sit in rows and one guy teaching a lesson, yeah. and that was discipleship, and, and and I think the reason we do that is because we think we can, we can disciple, quote-unquote, disciple more people uh, in a, you know, in a mm-hmm. broader sense, in a quicker sense, and what you're describing you know, it actually takes time to get going. So do you have thoughts on that? You know, the pastor who's thinking, is that it really? I actually just start with two or three. Well, it's a great, yeah, that's a great point to make because what we say is we've realized just through trial and error. And people ask me, man, do you guys have all the answers on discipleship? The answer is we don't have all the answers. The thing is we've been doing this now for about 15 years. Replicate's been around for 10 years. But we've paid so much dumb tax, I tell people, to keep you from having to pay that same kind of tax. We've kind of experimented through the years in different church sizes, different contexts. But here's what I would say. It is that simple. If we try to programize this thing, what happens is it becomes so cumbersome that it's not reproducible. So here's what people say. What's the curriculum? I hear this all day. What's your curriculum? Which studies do you go to? (laughs) And I tell people, are you ready for this? It's going to be a novel idea the Bible. <laughs> Any questions? Like, you know, it's like, it's like, what are you talking about with cricket? And here's what I realized. If we, if we, and we use other books and then we read different books together, but those are kind of sidebar things to the main thing, which is the Bible. Because here's the thing, what you introduce to your discipleship group is what they're going to reproduce on the back end. And the reality is this, if you try to read every new, latest, greatest book with your group, which we do at times, but if you try to do that only in your group and it kind of subverts the Bible, then what happens is your people think that the only way they can make disciples is to read this book by X author. For example, we know guys like this. Like there's guys out there that say, listen, if we don't go through workbook 101 and 201 and 301, we can't make disciples. Yeah. And what I tell people is, that's great, but with all due respect, the only book God's promised to bless is the Bible, right? And so instead of reading books about the Bible, let's get into the Bible. So what we've done is, we have actually created two Bible reading plans. I don't know if you're familiar with, we have one plan called the F260, which is called the Foundational 260. And the reason we created this plan, Jared, was simply to help people get in the Bible and engage with the Bible, who were kind of kind of put off or just felt overwhelmed when it came to Bible reading. Because let's be honest, most Bible reading plans in a year can be overwhelming. Yeah. Four to five chapters a day, five, seven days a week, uh, no days off. If you miss uh, a section of the Bible, you know, you got to catch up on five chapters. If you go on vacation, poor Ezekiel, 32 chapters, gone. <laughs> I mean, who's catching up on that, right? I mean, right. just gone. And yeah. 
And what happens is you start great in Genesis, January, you cruise through Exodus in February, but the wheels come off with Leviticus in March, right? And what happens is you just resort to Bible checking, you know, like, like Leviticus 16 check. Leviticus, and you feel like you're in the wilderness, right? Leviticus 17 check. And I told my wife, Candy, I said, what if we create a Bible reading plan that exposes the reader through to the whole meta-narrative of Scripture? They're going to not read every chapter of the Bible, but they'll read enough of the Bible where they'll understand the whole picture of the story. But they're going to read it chronologically as it unfolded. But here's the catch. You only read one to two chapters a day, five days a week, off on the weekends. Then we implemented this Bible reading plan called the HEAR method, where you journal through the Bible to hear from God. Highlight, explain, apply, respond. And we started this plan a couple years ago with our church. Lifeway has since picked this plan up, and now it's become kind of a bigger deal. This year, we just released uh, in November a New Testament plan, which is the counterpart to the F-260, which was the whole Bible. But here's what's cool about the New Testament plan. Somebody said, man, y'all have 260 days, which is basically five days a week off on the weekends for the year. They said, did you know that the New Testament has 260 chapters? I said, I didn't know that. And they said, why don't you, why don't you put together a plan for the New Testament? I said, well, if it's got 260 chapters, you don't need me to put together a plan. <laughs> but then we started thinking about it. What could we contribute with our plan? And here's what we realized. What if we take the New Testament plan and put it in chronological order where you're, in a sense, reading this as it unfolds? So here's the plan. It starts with Luke. It goes into Acts. And then when Paul makes his trip to Galatia, you read Galatians. When Paul checks his trip to Corinth, you're going to read Corinthians. When Paul's trying to get to Rome, you read... So the idea is you're going to read this plan as it unfolds. Lifeway just released that. And so we have these two options. And here's the reason I say Bible reading is important. Lifeway just released a study uh, a year ago. It was the largest discipleship study ever done. And they found out a few things that are worth noting uh, about discipleship groups and, and groups in general. But let me tell you two they found. They polled thousands of churches, both SBC and non-SBC churches. Here's what they found. The number one spiritual discipline that will affect change in the life of a believer, paramount to any other discipline in the Christian life. Watch this. Like, if you're going to choose, and if you're kind of a hedging man, kind of hedging your, hedging your bets, will I choose uh, Bible memory, prayer, evangelism, solitude, silence, worship, Bible reading, journaling, whatever, right? If you're going to choose one, this one was head and shoulders above the rest, and it was Bible engagement. Yeah. They found if you're going to choose one discipline, Bible engagement was the premier discipline. But here's the second thing they found, which is just as impactful as the first. People who read the Bible or engage, not, not just read, but engage. So basically what that means is you're reading to apply. You're reading to live out. But here's what they found, Jared, I thought was interesting. People who engage the Bible were more likely to give more than people who didn't engage the Bible. People who engage the Bible serve more. People who engage the Bible share their faith more. People who engage the Bible show up more for church. And what they found was Bible engagement affected every other spiritual discipline in the Christian life. So if we're going to go and champion, champion one thing in the Christian life, I would champion engaging the Bible. Why? Because it has a ripple effect 
for every other spiritual discipline to grow a person in the Christian life. You know, what you're highlighting is something that consistently comes up as well. That's not an anomaly for LifeWay to do that study. I remember oh, it was over 10 years ago, but when uh, Willow Creek Community Church did their reveal survey, sort of, um, oh, you know, man. I mean, their examination of is is our approach to ministry working? Uh, as part of that, they were identifying uh, the people within Willow Creek that they would uh, see as uh, spiritually growing, right, to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ was their vision. And the people they identified as actually, you know, uh, progressing beyond uh, spiritual immaturity into spiritual maturity, they wanted to know, like, what has made the difference? What's the And the number one catalyst for spiritual growth, to their surprise and to others, was Bible study. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's it's almost as if the, the Word of God is living and active and... Uh, you know, does you not return void. God was right. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Come on. So it gives me hives oh whenever God. I hear, you know, people say things like, oh, we don't need another Bible study. And, uh, you know, to some extent, I, I know what they mean, oh, you know, th- that we should be on mission and not just, you know, becoming eggheads. I understand that. But the idea that we need to diminish our time with the scriptures, uh, that, that that's you know, somehow only an intellectual pursuit and not the means by which the Lord is uh, is changing us and transforming us uh, is really strange. Let's take the Bible at, at its word, I think. I'll tell you something interesting, too, just kind of piggybacking that while we're here. One of the most fascinating things I've found is, and if you know anything about me, I'm, I'm big on the Eastern Jewish culture of Jesus' day. I wrote, I wrote a book called The Forgotten Jesus, which is basically just the forgotten aspect that Jesus is not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed American surfer dude, right? <laughs> He's a dark-skinned Middle Eastern rabbi, and because of that, he not only taught differently, but he kind of educated his disciples very differently than we learn in our Western culture. Here's what I think I found out about study. In the Western mindset in which we live, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's just, it is what it is. We're Western, Greek, Hellenistic-influenced Americans, so we're influenced by the West. We have bought into this idea that a person learns through transfer of information. That's a very... Platonic, Aristotle, kind of impacted kind of way. So we learn through transfer of information. So you think of the American church. This is how it was set up. We teach one sermon on Sunday morning. You come back on Sunday school, you hear a different sermon by a different pastor. You come back on Sunday night, different sermon by a different person, normally the pastor himself. Then you come on Wednesday night, you hear a different sermon by a different pastor. And then if you're super spiritual, you go to the Tuesday morning or Thursday night Bible study. And here's the reality, and Jared, you know this, if I were to ask most Christians in that environment to tell me the points from their pastor's sermon from Sunday, they couldn't tell me. In fact, I would even say you and I would have a hard time sharing our own points from Sunday. That's right, I mean, yeah. Because we have bought into this idea that a person learns through transfer of information, which, which yes, they do learn that way. You and I went to school, we've learned that way. But here's a more Hebraic, kind of an Eastern approach to learning, and this plays perfectly into the Bible. The Eastern culture doesn't just learn through giving new information. They actually learn through reiteration or repetition of old information. So I found this quote in the Mishnah, which which is a commentary on the Old Testament. Here's what the quote said. It was by a rabbi, and he said, He who studied his lesson... 100 times 
is not as effective as he who studied it 101. Hmm. Now, that is kind of a foreign concept to us because we don't want anything old. You and I want the iPhone 20. You know, we want the <laughs> iPad, you know, Pro X 20. You know, we don't want the old. We don't want the iPhone 3 and the iPhone 2. So we live in this society where we always want new and better and greater. But if we kind of superimpose that mindset on the Bible in our Christian life, I think we miss a lot. And so the point I'm making is this. It's not the things in the Bible, John Wesley said, that I have a hard time with that I don't know about. You know, it's not the things I don't know in the Bible I have a hard time with. It's those things in the Bible that I do know yeah. that I have a hard time with. Right? Don't look, don't lust, don't, don't steal, don't lie. And so I think it's important to realize, are we reading the same book over and over? Yes. But the Bible kind of layers upon itself as you grow in your faith and you read these encounters you read for years, and God just kind of applies them and, and, and uses them in different ways in our lives. So I just want to encourage people with that. You know, Bible reading may seem Monday, no man, I've read this before, but, it, but it's a living and active book where God applies differently at different seasons, different stages of our life. That's good. Robbie, let me ask you this, just as a practical um, application. This is a very common scenario. I hear it from guys, um, particularly in my uh, coaching cohort and, and, and other places, where they have uh, mid- to large-sized um, churches. Uh, they want to cultivate a culture of discipleship. I know we talked a little bit about this earlier, but what they ha- have inherited is sort of an, you know, an inch-deep uh, approach and they're trying to kind of right the ship. They want to get something going, and they just feel overwhelmed because largely what they have uh, are either newer believers or just immature believers, maybe people who've been in the church a while, but they just haven't really grown a lot in their faith. And they feel overwhelmed by just the sheer numbers, right? And they know that the back door may be open. There are people who will go elsewhere where someone else has already figured this out. Where do they begin? Because their fear is, man, if I just start with three or four, then I've, I'm losing 10, 20, what have you, out the door because there's no one to disciple them. What advice do you give that guy? Where is it just okay to start small and just let the Lord sort it out, or is there anything else he can do in terms of leadership development or what have you? Yeah, it's a great question because most guys that are probably listening are in a scenario that I was in my first church. First church, 65 people, Morgan City, Louisiana, kind of a bayou, small-town community, 10 of about 10,000. And so I had a small group of people to start with, and we had a lot of new people coming. And so I I had this temptation to kind of make it a large-scale program. And what I would just encourage the pastor, don't don't fall into that temptation that you have to get it going now and, and, and kind of scale it large. Discipleship is not a microwavable recipe. I tell people it's a crockpot recipe. There you go. So, I mean, you could pop a microwavable dinner in. And, man, you can have a pizza in five minutes. It's going to taste like a five-minute pizza. But when my wife or your wife puts a roast on the crock pot and I go to church on Sunday, I leave it, you know, in the morning and I come home, that recipe has been kind of marinating all day in the crock pot. When I get home at 1 o'clock, when I walk in the house, I can smell because it's been permeating through the house and it's worth the wait. (laughs) So, pastor, leader, don't fall into the trap that it has to happen now. I mean— you think of how long it took God to get you to the place you are, and you got to realize discipleship takes time. One of the things I found, Dad, young leaders, 
and, and, and either young in age or young in the place they are, and including me and you. I mean, we can fall into this trap, too. We tend to do two things. We suffer from two problems. Number one is we can underestimate what God does over the long haul, but then at the same time, we overestimate what we can do in the short term. So what I mean is we can get ahead of God. We want to change things right away. We see things in the church. Why is that there? And I realized, a guy told me this years ago. He said, you need to be okay as a pastor. And I I think about this all the time. You need to be okay as a pastor with low-level frustration all the time. Mm. I really like that. Here's what he's saying. He's saying you need to be okay with the fact that there are going to be things in your church that, man, you wouldn't do and you would fix tomorrow, but you need to be okay with that, and you need to prioritize what are the hills worth dying on? Like, if it's a gospel issue, we're going to die on that. If it's a orthodox issue, we'll die on those things. But these sidebar issues of, of, of Sunday school class and certain things, just prioritize what's important. And I would say what's important for you right now as a church pastor leader is to find a couple key people. And, and, and as you're praying as the pastor and leader, you need to think, like, you need to kind of steward the opportunity you have as a pastor because. You could disciple people older than you as the pastor, or you wouldn't be able to do that if you weren't, weren't the pastor. Like, like when I was a new pastor, I was, you know, 20, 28, 29 years old. I could disciple guys in their 40s and 50s, and I probably never would be able to do that if I wasn't the pastor. So right. what I would say is this. Find three or four guys in your church. Some may be new believers. They can be. But find a few guys in your church. Watch this who if God gets a hold of their heart and they start to live out the faith they have professed to believe in and, 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 and they start to grow in their faith, it's going to have a ripple effect in your church. And what happens is they'll be the greatest apologetic for discipleship you ever have. You, you'll never have to preach another sermon because people are going to say, hey, listen, if God can change Bubba, God can change Joe. Golly, I mean, what can he do with me? And they become the walking billboards for discipleship. And what happens is God turns those folks on fire for him. They get set on fire for God. And as Leonard Ravenhill used to say years ago, you don't have to advertise a fire. It advertises itself. Ah, When you start getting, bro, I love that. Because when you start getting serious about making disciples, you then in turn make disciples, it becomes a wildfire in your church particularly in a smaller context, and you just strap your spiritual seatbelt on and watch what God does. Brother, this is such good stuff. Thank you so much for coming on, brother. Man, it's been good. I'm, I'm appreciative of you, man. Thankful for what you do for the church and the Lord, and just really have been cheering you on from afar, and it's really good to see how God's using you. And thank you for being uh, having me on the podcast. It's been a joy. We've been speaking with Robbie Gallaty. He is the senior pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee, also the founder of Replicate Ministries, which you can check out online at replicate.org, replicate.org. You can also check out Robbie's books, numerous books on Amazon, Lifeway, uh, any place where fine Christian titles are sold. Um, As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast. Hosted by Jared Wilson, Managing Editor of For the Church. Found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders 
for the truth.